Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are here. My name is Gabriel Hako, and I am here with my BFF and also co-host, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie? I am doing great. I am so excited about getting this episode out over the airwaves for our listeners. Yeah, that's right. We've recorded an interview with a guy that we've been wanting to get on the show with and finally we've been able to make it happen sadie do you want to introduce who our guest today is yeah so today we have an interview with eric skorzenski of the preacher boys podcast in our interview that we just recorded we talked about the experience of being raised as a boy in the ifb because y'all hear so much about my experience of being raised as a girl in the ifb and what that meant and how that affected me but i really wanted to be able to show you the other side and eric is a bona fide expert in all of those topics of discussion so we had we had an amazing talk i really enjoyed it i think all three of us felt like we could have gone another hour and a half if we didn't have you know lives and schedules but it, I'm, I'm so excited for y'all to hear this. I really enjoyed this conversation. 
Yeah, he had a lot of great insight. What did we talk about? We talked about purity culture. We talked about toxic masculinity. Uh, we talked about movies as well because he's also a huge film buff. And and we talked about like censorship and growing up and and you know what his story was, how he realized that this wasn't the right move for him. It's a it's a really great interview. Uh, it was a really great conversation that we had, um, and we're so excited for you guys to hear it. But. Before we get into that, I just need to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, which is the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism, and we talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole, and it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's a couple of things that you can do. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where you can listen to an extended version of, of many of our episodes. I think last week's episode, the one that we had about the Duggars, there was an extra like 40 minutes of content that we just had to cut for time. But if you want to listen to that, that's all on our Patreon. There's a, a longer version of that episode. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. A lot of great conversation happens in there. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Sadie, anything I'm forgetting? Uh, I think that's it. We just want to thank our Faith Promise Missions and we can get on to the, the episode here. Yes, that's it. The Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, you guys are the guys that really keep the lights on for us. Um, and I want to thank you guys all by name. That is Andrew Rocant, Brittany, it's Brittany Bitch, Carrie R, Crystal Patterson, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hope Norum, Jessica Tambo, K. We, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lorena Watson, new Faith Promise Missions to your patron. We love you. We love reading new names off when we get to see them. Mary Martin, aka the actress who played Peter Pan in Peter Pan. Rachel Bernadowitz, uh, Rachel Bernadowitz, excuse me. Uh, Rebecca Hoyt, Sadie's actual BFF Morgan. Once again, we are Polly BFFers, so that totally flies. Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, and as always, Wes, the rootinest, tootinest cowboy in uh, the the Faith Promise Missions tier patron. Thank you so much to all of our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Every time Gavi goes to read off that list, I think there's going to be like five of them. And no, there are so many of you. Uh, so thank you so much to especially the Faith Promise Missions tier, but to all of our patrons who support our show and keep us going. Yes, we love you guys. We love all of you. And without further ado. So we have today on the podcast a guest that I am so excited to introduce. This is someone who you all, our listeners, have been begging us to have on. So we're finally able to do that for you. We have the host of the Preacher Boys podcast, several other podcasts with us in the virtual studio, Eric Skorzenski. And we are so happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm happy to be on your show as well. I feel like um, our people have been relentless about asking us to have you come on. No, it's literally been constant. It's like since we started up, like almost two years ago. It's like, when it's is your crossover like, with Preacher Boys? 
That's all we've heard about. It's so weird because it's such a weird niche <laughs> niche space. And like, there's all these people where it's like, it's not a big world, but then there's people like Isami, like I just had her on my show, you know, and it's like, yeah, I've known you for like two years and we've gone back and forth on social a few times, but it just hasn't happened. And it's like, how has this not happened in the two years that we've been we've been doing this? So um, yeah, glad we're finally here making it work. Well, it, it is good to have you here. I was wondering if you would start by introducing yourself to our audience for anybody who doesn't already know who you are and what you do. You've allowed so many people to share their stories on your podcast, but would you give us some background on your story and and how, how you got here? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, how long do you have? I can, I can give you the, uh, the 200 episode version. No, (laughs) whatever feels right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's so funny, you know, like trying to condense the craziness of everything into like a palatable version is always hard. Um, but since the audience listening is already familiar with the independent Baptist movement, I won't give too much context there as to the world I grew up in. But for me specifically, I grew up in Southern California, um, about 30 minutes from Palm Springs. Uh, If you're a movie buff, uh, if you remember Pee-wee's Big Adventure, where he stays in the dinosaur mouth uh, with a waitress from a restaurant, I was 15 minutes from that. (laughs) So there's your cool landmark. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. My parents were both staff members at a a Christian school. Uh, My dad still is. Uh, He works on the church staff there. Uh, My mom was a teacher. My dad was a principal. Um, I spent seven days a week on the campus of the church and school. So Monday through Friday uh, was attending the Christian school there with about 160 kids from K-5 to 12th grade, kind of a bubble. Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, I was attending services. Uh, Saturday, I was going out knocking doors and giving out tracts and invitation to church. So um, my world for the first 18 years was the independent Baptist movement. I'm always quick to say that as much as I have bad experiences, which I'll talk about in a second, the majority of my experiences were positive because I spent all my time there. So the good and the bad is there. I was never a bitter kid. I was never an angry kid. I was not what uh, so many of my critics would assume that I am. You know, I had good friendships. I had a lot of good memories, uh, a lot of good experiences. And then around 17 or 16 years old, uh, that bubble burst pretty hard uh, when we had a sexual predator shuffled to our church as part of a cover-up. And I spent the next two years really getting pushed out of my faith community because I was being vocal about something needing to be done. So that's a very condensed version. I can expound on any of those sections. Uh, I know I've shared my story a few times in other platforms, but that's the, you know, it was, it was a perfect bubble till it wasn't. And then uh, once you get pushed out of the bubble, you start examining the movement as a whole and realizing like, oh, this is kind of messed up everywhere. So uh, what do we do about it? Yeah, this happens everywhere. That's kind of similar to your story. Sadie, is that you were like happy in the, I mean, I wouldn't say happy, but like you were. I was as happy as I knew how to be. Well, I took some heat recently on a podcast for figuring it out. And, you know, we had somebody say, because me and Travis, one of the guys I work with a lot, we had said if it wasn't for these certain moments in our own stories, we wouldn't have left. And so their whole running with it was like, oh, so you only left because people were mean to you or whatever their thing was. And like, that wasn't the point. The point was we wouldn't have left because we didn't realize there were any cracks in the system. But once there was that first small crack in the system, the whole thing fell apart really quickly. And so it's like one of those things where like, yeah, it's perfect as long as you're playing by all the rules and not questioning anything. The whole thing, like the emperor has no clothes, appears really quickly when you start 
pushing back. So what was it that gave you the motivation to be vocally outspoken about um, the scandal that happened in your home church? Like, do you see that? Was it was it courage or integrity or anger? Can you talk more about why you felt like you had to push and keep pushing about that? You know, for me, it was it was heartbreaking that this happened. You know, it, it was a lot of emotions. I mean, I was the first one to find out that oh. the man who moved to our church had left his last church middle of the night, you know, with warrants out for his arrest for molesting a teenage girl. You know, I was the first one to find out. It was just a freak Google search. I went to see why he moved to our church, you know, totally not bad intentions. I wasn't looking for evidence to tear down the church. And I came across this information, didn't know what to do. I went to all the people that I thought were the authorities in my life and very quickly found out that nobody within my context of the faith community took this seriously. And so for me, it was a moment of shock that, oh, this can happen within, this is Catholic stuff. Like, why is this happening in my Baptist church? Then it was, you know, confusion because nobody seems to be taking this seriously. And then it was anger when people began getting mad at me for addressing it. And so I had people that I had built my real life father, my youth pastor, who was like probably for many people who grew up in it, was like a second father to me. You know, my pastor, who is like the man of God, all of these people were either completely uh, apathetic to the situation or they were actively upset that I would push back against there being a predator within our church. And so for me, it just pushed me to the outskirts of the faith community to a point where I started researching because that's what you do when you're isolated. You got nothing else to do. Let me look at some stuff. And I started finding out about the Jack Hiles of the world, the Jack Scops, the, you know, fill in the blank. Oh, this is not just one off crazy bad situation. Like there's a playbook, it feels like for this kind of cover up. And so for me speaking out, I think it was just, you know, the normal amount of teen angst amplified by, oh, my whole world and my whole worldview is falling apart in a matter of seconds. So Eric, Sadie's talked on the show uh, quite a bit about the different camps of the IFB. What sort of camp would you describe your camp as being part of? Yeah, I grew up in a really interesting version. You know, when I talk to people, there's like the people that are like, oh, I was hardcore. Like everything we did was modeled after Hiles. So my church was a little bit of a melting pot. And I've noticed that most of the West Coast churches, West Coast meaning the actual West Coast, not West Coast meaning West Coast Baptist College, though they would certainly fall Thank into this. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah, it's it, there's too many abbreviations and <laughs> nicknames for everything. But West Coast churches in general seem to be a bit of a melting pot. I don't know if that's just because that's what I see, but like Lancaster Baptist Church kind of affiliated with a lot of different groups. You know, um, our church, my youth pastor was from Pensacola. My, you know, some of my teachers were from West Coast Baptist College in Lancaster. My pastor was from Hiles Anderson. So like we got a blend of everything, good and bad, within our kind of structure of the school. So it was a it was a pretty broad mix. And I I couldn't say say like, oh, we most replicated like a Hiles Anderson or First Baptist Church of Hammond or a Bob Jones University. It was kind of a mix and each staff member kind of brought their own quirks. We definitely copied West Coast Baptist College in Lancaster a lot because we were near them, but that was mainly aesthetics. Like what did they do aesthetically? Mm -hmm. um, Belief-wise, it was kind of a hodgepodge of IFB theology. See, I grew up at like a heavily Hiles 
Inspired Midwest church just five hours, six hours from First Baptist Church of Hammond. But I also feel like, you know, thinking almost 15 years ago when I was going into high school, I think that Hiles Anderson College and West Coast Baptist College were more affiliated and less rivals until West Coast started getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely still an admiration there. Um, I mean, because Hiles, you know, IFB pastors can debate this all day long. Hiles really started the IFB movement as we know it today, you know, and, you guys know that I'm, I'm obviously, but I mean, he really is the benchmark of, I guess, standards for that movement. So like Paul Chapel is as much indebted to a Jack Hiles as he would be to any other influence that he might cite, you know, the bus ministries, all that sort of thing. So yeah, there's definitely that friendliness among the movement, but there's also these very strict circles of like, you know, we're in competition with each other. So it's a very bizarre world uh, when you're trying to pick apart who's influencing who. So were you doing that? Were you doing the bus ministries and the like the oh yeah spring program? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, we I I was on the bus every Sunday before church, after church, the van routes, you know, knocking doors, you know, going and. Did you have success doing that, or was it like, or, the, or were you like me, <laughs> the Sisyphean? Uh... Yeah, I mean, our, the bus ministry was responsible for a lot of the church, you know, attendance. You know, it was like the kids, you know, and. It's it's hard, you know. This is one of those things that you know. I try to assume the best in people, um, and I know there were people, you know, like my dad, for example. Like my dad truly wanted to help kids that needed a place that was stable, and we did pick up kids who were coming in out of situations where there was like drugs and like difficult family situations. And to some extent, I think there was something beautiful about providing a safe space a few times a week. Um, Obviously it wasn't as safe as what I thought, (laughs) but I think that there were certain workers, again, whether the ministry as a whole had ulterior, whatever motives and all that kind of thing, I don't know, but there were some truly good people that I think just saw people that needed help and were really trying, their heart was in the right place. And I I would say like, that's how I felt. It was like, man, I want to help these kids. And now, you know, fast forward to this present day, I feel really bad that I introduced people to that culture. Again, it's hard to look back and go like, man, was it a total evil thing? Or was there some good to it? You know, it's, I I wrestle with that stuff still. Um, Cause I know my heart was in the right place, even if the destination I took people to wasn't. That was really well said. And that's very much how I feel as well. I'm friends with some of my former bus kids on Facebook still. That must be a total shock for them. (laughs) Um, I, I don't know of any of them that have stayed in the IFB. Yeah. Um, A lot of them have have remained Christian or, you know, kind of non-denominational or whatever. Um, But I don't I don't know of any who have stayed really IFB. They only showed up to the to the church for the candy. Yeah, well, it's a it's a wild thing. You know, it's like it's just an interesting world. I mean, it like people like you said, I mean, they do. They show up for the safe space. They show up for the candy. They show up for the prizes and stuff and like can't blame them, you know. I mean, or their pretty parents cool. send them you for know? the free childcare, which exactly. as, as somebody who has been parenting during a pandemic for a year, uh, seems more and more appealing as time goes by. Yeah, I mean, it seems appealing, but then I also on the flip side, I'm like, I can't imagine the fact that people would let us take their kids for like hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like people you didn't know, like they'll be home sometime this afternoon. See you later. Right. And then they come back and they're like, yeah, some weird college student just swallowed a fish. You're like, what? what? Where did we just send you to? You know, but, but it's one of those things like, 
you know, I think about it now, the, the iconography of like the, the van pulling up and giving you candy to get in is pretty appropriate given the circumstances, but. So you guys also did goldfish Sunday. Oh yeah, dude. Worms, eat a worm, swallow goldfish. Wait, oh, did God. you ever swallow a fish? I didn't. There's no oh, way I would have ever done goodness. that. I did like, not either. That takes me to the next question. That, I love that you have a segue for swallowing goldfish. It comes up a lot around here. <laughs> This is like Sadie said that if you were a, a man and you were doing the bus ministry, it was Goldfish Sunday, you refused to swallow the fish. All the boys would be like, oh, you must be gay for, I guess, not swallowing the fish. I don't understand the reasoning behind that. But that was a thing when I was, uh, you know, and I was a normie kid. Uh, I grew up, I went to public school, but still, like even in middle school, the worst thing that could happen to you or not maybe the worst thing, but like a thing that you didn't want to have happen to you was people calling you gay. So you do all sorts of nutty stuff to to avoid people calling you gay i want to know because it must have been so much worse in fundamentalism what's the craziest thing you ever did to try to like make people think okay i this this is a very straight man here yeah bro i mean there there wasn't (laughs) there wasn't much hope for me i was like a film loving artiste you know running around with a camera i mean there's really I didn't have much hope within that world. Um, but you know, it, yeah, I mean, the fear of being gay was like just so, I mean, it was overflowing. Like there was this tension of like, and, and I remember the conversations, you know, and it's, it's like everything. It's hilarious thinking back of like how extreme it was, but also it's like really sad because like, you know, one of my, I mean, one of my best friends growing up, um, you know, we messaged last year and he told me, he's like, yeah, I'm gay. And I'm just like looking back at all the things that were said back in that context. I'm like, man, that sucks, dude. Like, I wish I wouldn't, I wish I would have been who I am now then. So you would have been comfortable telling me then. And we could have had a totally different dialogue about this stuff. But yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Like for, for us, I think it was like the form of like not doing these hyper masculine things to like try to avoid it. But it was, we just joked about it a ton. So like for me, like we would joke about other people being gay all the time. And like, it's, it's like, it's like awkward talking about it on a podcast. I'm like, you know, I'm sure if I had grown up just a few years later, there'd be so much documented stuff of the horrible things that we would say to each other, you know, but it really was like, we would constantly pick on each other, constantly joke about it. You know, the conversations about what if so-and-so was, you know, like all that sort of thing. But yeah, like I said, for me, I was never the athlete athletic, typical jock type, which I think there's an argument to be made that, that there's something gay about being the hyper alpha male. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, for me, um, you know, it was just constantly deflection, you know, it was deflecting anything uncomfortable onto other people, um, and letting them be the scapegoat for it. Almost in every social interaction, you had to be on guard, like, like Wonder Woman with those bracelets always ready, you know, ding, 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 got to deflect the, any, anything, I mean, I- any implication of being gay i mean i wouldn't be caught dead wearing a bracelet but uh yeah that's pretty pretty accurate (laughs) so i do i do want to focus this on the experience of growing up male in the ifb because we've spoken to a trans man who grew up in the ifb evan jones excellent interview please go listen to it and we've spoken to a non-binary person who grew up in evangelical culture, and that's Dinah. And we've spoken to a feminine person who grew up, but we haven't spoken yet to like a cis man who grew up in the IFB. I know what I was taught regarding gender and gender roles 
And I know that you're extremely well versed on what women were taught because you've given voice to on your platform and on your podcast to so many women who grew up in the IFB. And I do majorly respect that while I'm on the topic. But what I really want to dig into is what you heard on the other side. Something that comes up a lot when we talk about toxic masculinity and male supremacy in the IFB is objectification. And I know that in my experience, objectification came in two forms. It was first that women were treated as sexual objects, but also that women were treated as property beyond just being objects. Can you speak to your experiences? Like, what were you taught about this growing up and specifically on both of those ideas? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to thank you for being brave enough to to platform a cisgendered white male, because that's a perspective <laughs> that, in you the know, year in the 2022. podcast space, you know, in the podcast space, that voice and that perspective is not heard enough. So I, I applaud you. Um, uh, no, uh, no, I mean, yeah, look, the, the thing is, you know, like I said, it, it's double-sided. It's funny and it's horrifying, you know, looking back at the things that I was told and the things that I said. One thing that's, you know, I want to say off the bat is like, I'm not at all as much as I was a product of my environment, I'm not at all faultless for the things that I said. You know, there were things, you know, racially, homophobia, the sexist, like things that just came out naturally as a result of that environment. But at the end of the day, I said a lot of them. So like there is that ownership there when it comes to what did you do in this environment? Like how did you choose to act in that world? And so all that to say, like growing up, I didn't notice it because it was so deeply entrenched in everything, like the level of sexism, the level of misogyny, the level of just kind of like almost, almost hatred of women. Honestly, I mean, you'd get around pastors, you'd go to men's conferences and you would hear, you know, the jokes made about people's wives or the jokes made about women, you know? Um, And it was just secondhand. It's the same thing. Like I've realized over the years, like, you know, because I, I was saying when I started the show, I was like, man, I don't think I really saw a lot of racism in it. But then you like get out of it and then you're like, man, I would never say that now. <laughs> you know, or you don't notice all these different levels. So what we were taught, I mean, from a male perspective was when it comes to sex specifically, and I can talk about other categories, but sex specifically, since you talked about like the purity culture and all that, you know, for us, it was, you know, for men love sex which is true, you know, like sex is a good thing, but it was like, you know, women are emotional, men are sexual. Um, That was what we were taught. Sex is mainly for the men. Women love more of the emotional. They want to be cared for. I I think it was, uh, I forget what the, I think it was men want to be respected. Women want to be loved. I think Mm -hmm. was one of the things that they would throw out. You've probably heard that or variations of it. Yeah. That one and, and men are a microwave, women are a crock pot. Oh my God. I heard that every conference for men, you know, all all this kind of stuff. And so what I, my perspective on women was fueled by two things really. Like one within the church, I was being told that like, you're the sexual creature one day you'll get married and you'll finally be able to fulfill that desire. Um, That was the extent of like the sex talk for a lot of my life growing up. But then when you have guys, and I would say for my friends as well, but then when you have that situation and then you have these like super sheltered, suppressed men, boys at the time going and watching porn, which, you know, not to out all my friends, but like a lot of my friend group watched a lot of porn. Your two biggest introductions to what a relationship looked like was coming from 
hyper purity culture and then like hardcore porn, you know, and like neither of those give you a healthy view of a sexual relationship. And so, you know, it, it's a confusing thing when you're dealing with two extremes that are both objectifying women from an early age. Like that's the biggest thing I would say is like purity culture from an early age sexually objectifies women. If you're having a conversation about how short or how long a four-year-old's skirt is at school, you're sexualizing mm-hmm. them. End of story. If you're worried about what their knee is going to cause in a man's mind that's on the playground, ask yourself why you're worried about her knees and not the creepy guy on the playground. <laughs> like that's the that's the first thing I would say. But then also when you have guys that are hypersexualized told that sex is for you, sex is for you, sex is what men enjoy and you treat women as like the treatment for that. You know, I remember having one of the people in their leadership role tell me, like, when I told him I was struggling with porn, you know, he was like, well, you'll get married soon and you'll be able to use her. That was the <laughs> exact words. You know, Ew. it's like, yes, you, wow. you is right. Uh. But like, that's the kind of stuff that was just like, I didn't realize it in the moment that that was so bizarre to think that way because you're just taught that's how it is. So like now, now that I'm married and now that I'm in a healthy sexual relationship and a healthy relationship period, it's like the more that I look back, the more I'm like, oh my God, like if we had been different people and not gotten the really good premarital counseling that we ended up getting that explains some stuff to us, it would have been a toxic, frankly, very rapey relationship based on the way that we were taught the power dynamics kind of worked in that. Yeah, wow. I was I was always given the impression, going off what you said about um, men are sexual, women are emotional. I don't know how specifically it was said or whether mm-hmm. it was just kind of implied. Oh, it was said. that yeah. in, Well, that in saying men are sexual, women are emotional, the counterpoint to that is men are not emotional, women are not sexual. Oh my God, yes. Because I that- always felt like I had, seriously, I was a 17, 18 year old girl with no idea that women experienced sexual pleasure. Just no clue. Yeah, I, I, I talked about that on a on a episode recently. And that was one of the things for me. So I, I I came out of, like, if I got married at 18, it would have been a very bad situation because like I had no, I truly thought that it was like, oh, well, women don't care about sex. And, you know, and I shouldn't, I was always a very emotional person. And I was like, well, I shouldn't be as emotional as I am. So like, I have this problem, you know, whatever, which is just, you know, we could talk about that. Like there's a lot of homophobia and just men not being able to express emotion. But with me, we ended up getting premarital counseling and it was a very good thing. I was reading a lot of good, at the times, good books, not books I'd recommend now, but I was talking to people who were giving me the information of like, you know, women can enjoy sex. Wow. Mind blowing thought there. You know, there are things that you can do to make sure it's pleasurable for them, all this sorts of thing. And so we actually had, ironically, the reverse problem when we first got married was like, I was so terrified that I was going to hurt her Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so terrified that I was going to overstep a boundary that like I was overly gentle. And like my wife was like, you know, the lie that women are not sexual. She's like, are we going to do this or not? Like, (laughs) let's go. So it's like this funny thing of like, you know, the idea that that men are not emotional is bullshit. 
the idea that women are not sexual is generally to say any whole group of people is not sexual is bullshit. And I think the reason that most IFB people's wives are quote unquote not sexual is because they're dealing with a man who's not doing anything for them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's and they just, may uh, or may not be raising like six <laughs> children by themselves and pregnant with the seventh. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it kind of goes back. It's like the when Ben Shapiro was doing his response to WAP and he's like, yes. you know, and, you know, <laughs> it's one it's of our like, favorite things. <laughs> It's like it's like I don't I don't think you saying that your wife is never wet is a badge of honor or a flag you should plant deep in the ground. You know, it's like maybe uh, maybe you should ask some questions of your uh, medical professional wife. But anyway, uh, not to distract too much. My wife, who's also a doctor, says that um, that level of uh, moistness is a result of bacterial vaginosis. <laughs> <laughs> That was incredible. I missed missed whatever you're laughing at because my internet cut out. So now I get to hear it. You were laughing at bacterial vaginosis. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not not funny normally, but. I've never said that on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's okay. We We are breaking new ground. There you go. We, we've talked in the show a bunch of times about like how Sadie, you know, they'd have all these meetings where they get all of the women in a room together telling them, oh, they had to do this and that and the other thing for their husband, never saying, what were they telling you guys during that time? Were they, is this what they were telling you or they were telling you like, um, we, we want to know what was going on. Like when, I don't know if you had like split chapel or if you went to, to summer camp, if they would split off, uh, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, I want to know what they were saying in those meetings. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I said, it was pretty limited. Like women got it way worse than men in the movement. Like it, it, uh, you know what? That's not fair because the toxic teachings were, I think, equal as far as being assigned roles. Like it was definitely a patriarchal system that benefited men. You know what I mean? So like when you look at the women getting split off and being told you're like a rose that's been passed around or a piece of gum mm-hmm. that's been chewed or a dollar bill that's been stepped on or whatever the illustration was that you got, like, I don't recall. And maybe it was talked about. I just wasn't paying attention, which is a very real possibility. Like, I don't remember there being conversations like that about like men having sex, giving away pieces of themselves. Like I definitely know the majority of like the admonition against men having sex was like, it could hurt your ability to do ministry later on. Like you don't want to make a mistake that would ruin your future, which I guess is kind of the other side of the coin that women got. But it was like, it wasn't that it hurt your value, which is what I feel like when I listened to, when I sat in sermons where they preached about women's purity or when I, when I read, you know, chapters of books about purity for women, like it seems like sex was an act that devalued them. Whereas like with men, it was like a mistake that would hurt your potential, you know, moving forward. I think it goes back to objectification because women are a sexual object that will one day that is currently owned by a father and will now one day be owned by a husband. And they're a threat, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But but like your body is an object for your husband to use. And if you have sex outside of marriage, you are taking away the value from that object. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it was, and it was a lot of it too. Like, we got the talks very early on of like, don't be alone in a room with a woman because she could make an accusation against you, mm. you know, and destroy your chance at ministry. Like, don't hold hands because it's going to lead to sex. Like, don't do. Women were very much positioned as a threat to your position of 
power, I guess, essentially (laughs) of like, if you're going to be a pastor one day, or if you're going to be a ministry one day, you could forfeit that. Do you want to forfeit that by a mistake you're going to make as a 15 or 16 or 17 year old kid? And, you know, so like women were a threat, but also a trophy. And both of those are extremely, uh, you know, so what's crazy Yeah. Well, okay. So what's crazy to me, I want to back up about don't be in a room alone with a woman because she might make a accusation that will hurt your ministry. Because I was told this is uh, sorry, this is on air deconstructing time with Sadie. I was told don't be in a room alone with a man because men are uncontrollable animals and he will assault you. Yeah. Do they use the word assault? Were you in a very progressive church? (laughs) No. um, Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to I'm trying to pull well, up no, the exact men, wording because men, it's been erased men can't by my control trauma their brain. lust. Men have these actions, yeah. like yeah, we heard that too. Like there was things. Don't give yourself the opportunity to sin. You know, we'd hear that kind of thing. It is terrifying. Like again, it's something like when you really sit and think about it. Like when you re- when you repeat it on a podcast, it's like yeah, that's crazy. Like the idea that you can't handle working late with a secretary because you might have sex. That doesn't. That's not how that happens. Like you're not just working late one night and you catch each other's eyes and you do, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure that happens sometimes, but like, you know, it's not the situation where like, if I'm left alone with this woman in this room, we're inevitably going to have sex. And that's kind of how it was taught that that could happen and that women are going to try to trap you. You know, like I, I remember an illustration given of a pastor, maybe it was true, you know, but it was given like, this is like, this could happen at any time. And there was an illustration given by our pastor of a woman calling a pastor for counseling or some kind of emergency at her home or something. And like, she comes to the door in a bathrobe and like, is tries to seduce him. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, sure. You probably heard like some other alternate ending. Cause as we've learned, there's so many director's cuts of all these different stories. (laughs) Um, But like basically this idea of like, she was trying to trap him to destroy his ministry. And it's like, yeah, are do do people exist that try to, you know, wreck homes or wreck businesses or sure. Is that a real everyday threat? That like I mean, look, I, I'm sure you remember the same IFB pastors that I do. I don't think women were lining up to like, you know, hook up with the pastor for any purpose, <laughs> let alone some nefarious satanic plot. I mean, it just wasn't happening. So according uh, to the IFB, every woman is Maria Reynolds from Hamilton. Uh, I have no idea. I've never seen Hamilton. I thought you were a theater guy, man. I'm straight. (laughs) I I don't know what you heard, but uh, I definitely don't watch musicals. Uh, I'll just tell you that. I'm just kidding. I've never seen Hamilton. He told me off mic that he was into theater. Film. Film. Okay, film. (laughs) That's manly, right? (laughs) So I know that like, you've talked a little bit about how all of this had to be deconstructed in your relationship with your wife. And that totally makes sense that there would be a lot to work through. And I'm, it's really nice to hear that you've done that work. That makes me feel, you know, like, that makes me feel good about your wife. Like, oh, good. Okay. She's got a, a good partner who's gone through this. But do you feel like you had to deconstruct this stuff in your relationship with all other women in your life? Like, co-workers and female uber drivers and everything because i definitely felt like i had to do that yeah definitely so um on the flip side like it i didn't feel like it was a long process you know like once i realized it wasn't accurate the information that was given a lot of it went away pretty quickly 
but it definitely is like, there's still things that just are second nature because you've been told it your whole life. Again, the idea like, oh, I can't be alone with this woman. Like, you know, I still have to balance that sometimes of like, oh, I feel weird about a certain situation. Should I listen to my inner self that's telling me this is weird? Or is that like leftovers of this environment, you know? And like, really, I think where it comes down to on a relationship level, you know, and I'm by no means an expert for me, as long as there's like a transparency between me and my wife and she's okay with the situation, like that's pretty much the only person I need to be okay with it. Whether or not someone thinks I'm the appearance of evil or something doesn't come into my mind the way it used to. If I ask my wife, Hey, I'm going to go meet, not even asking because like she doesn't require me to ask her. Like if I, if I say, Hey, I was going to go meet so-and-so to record this or, Hey, I was going to go meet so-and-so, you know, to, you know, for whatever reason, if she's cool with it, like, why do I care what Sally so-and-so from such and such Baptist church thinks about my Facebook post where I'm getting coffee with this person? Like to me, like, as long as I'm not violating the trust of my own relationship, I'm not really that concerned about it uh, at this point. But yeah, like being alone was one thing. Like I think respect, like there's a lot of things like, and not, not that I just straight up like thought women were whatever, you know, but like not belittling like accidentally, you know, a women's role in something or not assuming something because of their gender took is, is still a work in progress. You know, like I'll catch myself saying things where it's like, like for, for example, the emotional thing, like there's times where I'll, I'll just inherently assume that someone might take something more emotionally, which is so silly because I'm one of the most emotional people I know. So like the idea that I would associate emotion with gender or fill in the blank with gender is a silly thing to do, but it's just easy for us to think that way. Like, oh, of course she's going to probably, we need to be careful how we say this because she might take it this way. Or with guys like, oh, obviously this is not going to bother him because he's a guy. And it's like, yeah, men can be emotional. Like, that's a very real thing. Women can be better in certain situations at handling and processing emotions. So trying to unlearn that and teaching myself to go, what is this individual person, regardless of gender, what is their you know, mental and physical or whatever the topic is, ability to process and handle a certain situation, and then applying it to that person, not to their gender. Yeah, I'm I'm married. My husband is a um like a super heavy metal guy. He's in a like a doom metal band. But he's <laughs> he's a very emotional person. Yeah. I think he he's the type of person who will like take an offhand comment wrong mm-hmm. or take it emotionally more than I would. Yeah. And just not assuming that somebody's going to react a certain way. I think the the fundamentalist way of looking at it is that your gender determines so much about who you are. Yes. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> and it oh, gives you, you have, access to certain positions that you're not yeah. qualified for. Just uh, right, you, you, you know, you don't have a, a Y chromosome, so therefore you're automatically dumber and more emotional, and 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 you love baking, and you want to have a bunch of kids, and yeah. it it just imposes so much of your personality based on what chromosomes or body parts you do or don't have. 100%. I think the the last holdout for me was being in a car with somebody. Mm, Because even I was like, I was out of the IFB for like five years when Gavi and I worked together and he kept offering me to give me a ride to work because we (laughs) live close to each other and he just picked me up on the way to work. And I kept putting him off like, no, I'll take the bus. It's fine. Yeah. Because I'm like, can I... Is that why? Yes. (laughs) Really? Because... It, I mean, it took me like two. I'm like, you sure? You sure? Clearly, <laughs> like, hung out the bus is safer. Like, 
Yeah, the bus in Portland, Oregon is is much safer. Yeah, it, it's it's really sad, you know, and it, it is. It's one of those things. It's like, like I said, it's it's funny, and but we laugh to keep from crying. You know, like there's these yep. things where it's like, man, it's just so weird to think that way. And the longer that I'm out of it, you know, I graduated almost 10 years ago now. And it's like crazy for me sometimes talking about this stuff to go like, oh yeah, I really like, how did I think about it back then? Cause that's so weird. <laughs> like that's, it feels bizarre looking back on it. It's like looking back into a different version of you or you in a different life Right. for me anyway. So, so th- thinking about deconstruction and purity culture and the misogyny in the IFB, what parts of this do you think the deconstruction is very much the same for people who are assigned female at birth, people who are assigned male at birth? Or what do you think is drastically different for people who were raised as men in the IFB, people who are raised as women? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing that's the same is fear. You know, I, th- I when I have conversations with people, whether ones that are deconstructing, I don't want to say fully deconstructed, obviously I stepped away from like the Christian faith in its entirety. Um, and we not, heard about that. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. <laughs> yeah you I, th- I think I, that, I, think I read about that somewhere, you know, like, and again, it wasn't a, it was a decision made out of just a lack of belief more than it was a rigid belief in something else. Like it just, I couldn't justify it and I couldn't make sense of it. And it's not to say that I'll never, that I would never be in a quote unquote Christian worldview again, but I couldn't make sense of it as it stood. And so stepped away. And what I've noticed in conversations from that decision, and I'm not a very aggressive person in my persona with Preacher Boys, uh, contra- contrary to what my profile picture on there would indicate. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm Love I'm a pretty <laughs> I'm a pretty chill person on the show, you know, and a pretty calm. Like I don't wear my any of the anger that I feel at times on my sleeve on the show at all, um, and so. But what I've noticed, what I've noticed is that there's people who, when I talk about like, they instantly go into like, man, that's a scary place to be or, oh man, you must be terrified. And it's like, I'm not because it it, it is only as powerful as how much you believe it, you know? And like at the point that I stopped being able to, in my own mind say, oh, I believe in a place I'm going to burn forever you know, if I get this wrong or at a point where I'm going to say like, cause I really came to a point where I was like, if there's a God, if there is, and I haven't really talked about this in depth, but like, if there's a God and I think that there's some, I lean toward, there's some reason we're here. I don't know what it is, but like God knows what I've seen. He knows how, how much I tried to research and study and believe and stick in it. Like, I think he'll understand if I stepped away and was wrong. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and somebody's listening to this, you know, and is going, that's not how it works, you know, whatever, but that's fine. Like for me, I'm just not, I'm not any more scared of dying than I was when I was in it. I'm not any more scared of being right than when I was in it. Like if anything, I feel a lot freer now than I ever have felt. And I don't have as much fear. I don't care what other people think about me. You know, I don't care. Uh, I'm not fearful of whether you know, I'm going to lose my quote unquote testimony because someone saw me drinking a white claw on a podcast. Like, (laughs) you know, there's all these things that like, there's this fear that's just innate within fundamentalist culture, whether it's fear of people, whether it's fear of God, whether it's fear of being wrong. I think that's something that everybody deconstructing has to work through is like, how do you get rid of that irrational fear of how other people perceive you and how, 
you know, how right you are. Cause everybody is wrong about uh, so many things every single day. You have to just keep working on the process of figuring out what you believe and what's true. And so I would say fear is the same for everybody. I'd say as far as like what's different for each gender, um, I would say we've kind of talked about it. Like I think the way men it's learning to be uh, kinder, gentler and more understanding of the needs of their spouse. uh, If they're married to a female, uh, which most who got married out of that movement did because there wasn't many other options. Um, But if you're married to a woman from the movement, I think, you know, recognizing that you were taught to be an abuser, the way that you were taught about women, the way that you were taught about yourself, the way you were taught that sex was an act in which you dominate someone um, is abusive and rapey at best. And so you need to unlearn what it means to be a man. Um, you need to figure out what that means for you, uh, what your role is in your marriage. Uh, and your role is not immediately handed to you because your gender. You have to earn your role. If you want to be a leader in your home, if you want to be in any kind of relationship, you have to earn that. And then I think for women, on the flip side, and this is where I feel really bad for women in the movement, is that they married these guys. And so for a woman who's deconstructing, who's married to an abusive rapist, you know, I, I would say abusive at a best and straight up rapey. And, you know, we know all the countless stories of this at worst. They have to walk on eggshells to express where they're at and hope upon hope that their husband is not going to turn on them is not going to punish them, is not going to drag them to the pastor to get counseled for speaking out um, and being bitter and all those things that get thrown out. And so I think the real differences aren't so much in what needs to be deconstructed, but the amount of safety and freedom you have to deconstruct. You know, And I think, I think men need to be really understanding of that. If you're a male in the movement, you have a lot more freedom. You have the option to leave. You usually have a job. You usually have financial freedom, flexibility. If you're married in a relationship, you know, or in a relationship with a woman, she likely has been told she's not allowed to work. She has to be a housewife. She has to be submissive. So she doesn't have as much freedom and space as you do to quote unquote deconstruct. And I, I just, I just think as bad as that is, that is the system that was created. And I think both need to be understanding and aware women more for their safety and men to be a place of safety uh, for the women in the relationship. And I have failed really hard at that. Uh, at times in our marriage and on the flip side, you know, my wife who didn't grow up a hundred percent in it, she came in more in high school years. She's had to extend so much grace to me for not understanding things that I should have known as a normal human being, uh, being taught by normal, rational people. And so it's a, it's a really scary thing. I feel really a lot of sympathy for women who grew up in the movement. Um, and I feel a lot of sympathy for men who were lied to and told that you are this dominant alpha fill in the blank because it doesn't do anybody any good. Even the person who has a perceived higher position of power, uh, if that makes sense. That was that was beautiful. And so much of that, I feel like could have come out of my own mouth, but you said it better. Um, I, as, I wanted... as cis men often do, you know, we got to step in. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If someone's listening, that's a joke. It's just pure sarcasm. Please don't. No, I'm going to take, I have the raw audio for that. I'm going to take it out of context. I'm going to use it to get you canceled. Don't worry, Eric. He threatens Uh, me with this all the time. I'm going to put put that in the Twitter DM, send it straight. (laughs) (laughs) 
Don't worry, we'll bleep. I'm going to bleep the name that I just said on the actual recording. Don't worry about that. Patreon knows the beef. (laughs) Oh, we know. We have we have beef. We have ongoing beef. Oh, I know. I wanted to. I wanted to circle back to to something you said about fear about you know not feeling that you need to be afraid of hell, not feeling like you need to be afraid of what other people think. That was so neat to hear from your perspective because when I heard your original episode about officially stepping out of Christianity. I felt like you were trying to say the exact same thing that I would say about my own religious Mm. beliefs at this point. And you just confirmed it for me. And that was so neat to hear live. Uh, I feel exactly the same way about, you know, if I am incorrect about what I believe about God, I feel that any good and loving God would understand knowing what I've been through and knowing what I've seen. Now, I went through that same exact line of thought and came to the conclusion of like, I do still want to believe in God and I choose to believe in God of my own desire to because I want to. But I feel like we are just two sides of the same coin on that. You guys have both spoken um, at length about the need to be right. And you guys were raised in that uh, raised with that idea. Do you think that now with social media, there is a detailed record of everything that everybody's ever thought ever, <sighs> like every position that anyone's ever had ever? There's a need to like feel like, okay, I have the absolute right opinion about this because if I say it and it's wrong and three years from now, somebody digs up, oh, well, you were wrong about this thing three years ago that, you know, that. I think there's two things here. So like one you know, not to be super long winded, but, but the two things I would say is one, I think people, social media is a polarizing thing. We're the way the algorithm works, you know, pushes us around people that agree and applaud things that uh, we say that resonate with them. Uh, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, but it has pushed us to be more polarizing in our positions because we get rewarded to be so. So that's one element. I think the other side that rides say like, I'm still wrestling with the balance there. Um, I love that I just burped so we can cut that. Uh, (laughs) I think the one part that I struggle with a lot is, like you said, there's a record of everything you believe, at least for me from 16, 17 onward. And like, there's some stuff that I probably have somewhere, like if someone dug deep enough, they would like, if I ran for president, it would make the front page, you know, like, oh, we said this about gay people in 2000. 11, you know, and it would be really bad and it, it does need to be talked about, you know, and that kind of thing. But like, for me, I feel like I'm in this weird position where like, because I was so open about where I was at and continue to be, but because I was so dogmatic, I should say for so long, now I feel the need to almost state when I got it wrong. And sometimes it feels that can feel like I'm posturing or it can feel like it's this, like, well, why do you need to be so open about it? Like, oh, good for you. You changed this position. Like, why? Like deconstruction. Like, why do we need to know if you believe in God? But like for me, I'm like, well, I spent two years on my show saying I believe this, and I did. But now that I don't, I don't want to just stop talking about it and pretend like I never said that. I need to own it and say where I'm at. And so, you know, I think it's kind of this mix of that. Like, I'm not necessarily scared of being wrong. Like now, in the way I say things, I always say like, I don't know for sure, but right now, that's where I'm at. But I did say so much that was literally wrong and hurtful for so long that I feel like I almost need to like publicly state like, hey, this is where I'm at now, you know, but it's, it's a hard balance. Like what is for you? What's personal versus like, what's the public figure, you know, side of it versus what's the 
social media record you need to leave behind, you know, what's honesty versus, you know, it's a tricky one, but it's why I do. I mean, I do have sympathy for people that uh, get canceled for something they said at 16. Cause I'm like, man, like someone was trying to do that with Ted Cruz. Um, I, I said, I wasn't gonna be long winded, but someone tried to do that with Ted Cruz. And there's a lot of cancelable things about Ted Cruz, but, <laughs> but someone pulled a video, um, someone pulled a video of Ted Cruz from when he was like a high school senior. And he's like, they're like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he's like, I want to make a lot of money. And I want to be with a girl with like big boobs. I think he said in the video. And I, I was mean, like, respect. I, and I, well, I was like, I was like, <laughs> any 18 year old boy would say that. Exactly, like, come on. I was exactly. like, preach brother. Exactly. See, I feel like, and I that's feel why like I was like, it's, it's not fair to pull something from teenage years and try to slam somebody. Oh, no. Like, unless and, it's a literal crime that somebody did. Right. <laughs> then, right. I don't think it, anything you said before you were like 20 should be a cancelable offense. I did see a picture of him with Josh Duggar, though. Okay. So, well, you know, but again, like you, there's <laughs> well, he there's did that pictures, as an adult, <laughs> you know, but like there's stuff now where it's like, you know, I look back at high school and I'm like, you know, there's stuff that I said that if it came out and I was a celebrity, I could get I wouldn't be allowed to host the Oscars, you know, but it's like I was in fundamentalist craziness, you know, and like not again. That's not excusing it, but I understand when other people make changes, like, again, how do you go about showing that? How do you go about showing that change in a way it's not braggadocious or like fake false humility, but also like resetting the record and saying like, what I said was wrong, like, here's where I'm at now. And that's a really tricky juggling act. When Facebook pulls up and says, 13 years ago on this day, you said this, do you delete that or do you leave it up? Uh, my wife screenshots and sends it to me and says, you were so cringy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I will delete some if they're like, like, I don't delete every quote or verse that I ever posted. Like, I'm not trying to like whitewash my whole background of like what I was. Cause some of it is representative of what I was at the time. And that's interesting to see. But like, there are some things like there was one post in particular, you'll laugh at me for this. I'll brace myself. Um, but you know, I posted something about, cause I used to live right down the street from church. And so I would walk Sunday nights to church in my suit. And I posted, my status was literally this. I feel like such a for saying this right now. <laughs> I posted when you're walking by, it was something about separation. And I said, when you're walking to church in your suit and tie and you walk past someone dressed like a gangster going the other direction. Oh. And like, I put some, I made some point about like being separated from the world, mm. but it's like, what a douchey thing to write, even as a 16 year old, like, and the thing is like that post had likes on it. And I'm like, why did no adult say like, Hey, just cause someone's wearing jeans and a t-shirt doesn't mean they're a quote unquote gangster and you're not better because you're wearing a suit and tie. But like stuff like that, like I'll delete because it's like just douchey and it doesn't represent anything I want to be represented by. But yeah, it just depends. Like stuff like that is pretty much purged at this point, I think. But I'm sure some <laughs> investigative reporter at some point uh, from the IFB will pull something up. See, um, what I do is I just set all of that stuff to only me. Right. On Facebook. Yeah. there There is still a old Twitter account of mine where I live oh. tweeted the... Um, I live tweeted the Ken Ham Bill Nye debate. Oh man! <laughs> and I'm sure you can predict what my thoughts on that were. Two two people that have no no place debating that topic, both both pandering to their sides. But anyway, that's one other story. Well, I think well, it wasn't much of a of a debate right. really. 
But I think the thing about the other thing about um like social media and and whether you need to come out and say that you've changed something for me it's it's the IFB indoctrination of like we never change we never change our standards have never changed blah blah blah. So when you do <clears throat> when you do deconstruct and you do change it feels like a very monumental thing. Mm-hmm. Um I'll tell you what I did um personally I I wasn't aware of a lot of blatantly homophobic things that I did in the IFB. Now, of course, I lived in and profited from and agreed with a homophobic system that hurt people. I wasn't aware of a lot of people that I personally hurt, like thinking as a child and as a teenager. But um, when I was in early deconstruction, I found a gay couple who were getting married and made them a free wedding cake because I'm, I'm a baker and I can make a nice cake. Mm. So I made them a free wedding cake. And it wasn't it wasn't about like, oh, baking this cake absolves me from the moral damage that I did. But it was more like I'm doing this physical action as a um, as a testimony to the change that has gone on in my heart and that it made me feel better. It made me feel like I had done something to mark that shift in my thinking. Yeah, that's huge. And that that's the that's what I mean is like only you know that motivation, you know, like and so people can say, Oh, I'm trying to pander to a certain audience or whatever, but it's like, no, I just want to be just as like I just believe in radical transparency and for myself. Like I'm not saying everyone should feel this way and like live their life in the public eye, whatever, you know. But like for me, that means you know, stating my beliefs, whether they change or not, you know, sharing that with people and just saying like like you said, it's a journey. Like it's a, it's a process of doing it. And what you said last week might not represent who you are today. And it's okay to share that. And it's not braggadocious or, or this like pharisaical kind of mindset. It's like, I'm just showing who I am in that moment and being the best human I can be with the knowledge I have right now. So I want to ask you one more like hard hitting IFB question. And then I think Gavi has a a more fun question that we can kind of use to play us out here. So the last thing that I want to talk about as far as the male experience growing up in the IFB, I always felt that there was pressure on men in a way that there wasn't on women to be called to preach and to be called to the ministry. Because as you know, as we've been talking about this, it's I don't like using words like, oh, well, men had a better experience and women had a worse experience. Because in many ways, that is categorically objectively true. But but it, it doesn't, I don't like saying it that way because I feel like it devalues the trauma that is specific to men and, and the, the ways that the IFB damaged people who were raised as men in the IFB just as much as it did people who were raised as women. So I want to know, was being called to preach, was that a major pressure in your life? And how did you deal with that? I was I was really lucky in this case that my parents never pushed it. You know, my parents knew from the time I was like five or six, like I was fascinated by creative stuff. And so, um, you know, I, I was always interested in like movies and filmmaking and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, my parents really were amazing when it came to supporting that dream and you can do it and all that sort of thing. I did get the pressure for ministry from everybody else, whether that being a teacher, pastor, you know, I wanted to be a pastor for a little bit, you know, um, after leaving high school, which is a whole nother can of worms. Um, but like for the most part, I always knew like, I don't want to do ministry. 
I want to, and if I do, it's going to be like media ministry, like going and filming videos, which I kind of did for a couple of years. So like, I didn't get that. What I did get pressured really hard for was to go to like one year Bible college, which everybody gets that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was graduating high school, the last two months I was in high school, right before graduation, um, I accepted I had applied to West Coast Baptist College. I got in because they accept anybody that can afford to pay the tuition. I got accepted to college. I was going to go. And then I got a call from someone offering me an internship to shoot a documentary and work in video production. And so I was like, yes, I'm going to do that. And the day before my graduation, um, my pastor and my dad and me sat in his office and the pastor basically said like, basically talking to my dad while I was there was like, he needs to go to Bible college. If I brought a hundred pastors in here, they would all agree that he needs to go to at least one year of Bible college. Like, why are you letting him do this? That sort of thing. And so that was a really bad situation, but like that was really the most extreme version of it that I got was like this kind of like back and forth shouting match for an hour. And then I was going to do what I was going to do anyway. And at that point, I had no respect for the place I was in. Like, I was kind of like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do because you guys have your own issues, you know? But um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely there, but I was lucky. When I talked to other guys who got pushed really hard, um, I definitely didn't get that. Film is like a passion for you. Yeah. You're the king yeah. of the segue. I yeah, love it. I love I'm what you're trying, doing right now. And I'm the king I'm of to, I'm the king of destroying and derailing your segues by saying nice segue, but go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> that just means I didn't have to do it this week. So thank you for giving me the vacation. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, but like so so film is like a passion for you. I want to know specifically, so A, what were the standards of like movies that you were allowed to watch when you were a kid? No art no R-rated movies was that's a, it. Was the one. Um no, uh, when I was really young, probably through like sixth grade, like language was a huge issue. Like we had a TV guardian, like it's like a box that plugs in the TV and like removes yep. language. Um, which is funny. Cause like after a few weeks you learn what all the replacement words are. So you like still read in the bad word. Um, like when they say crud, you know, they're saying crap or shit when they say um, sex was hugs. I remember that. So like you'd be watching a movie and they'd be like, let's have hugs, you know? Um, And then I think uh, was wow. So like, um, so to this day when I hear someone say like, oh, wow. Like in my mind, I'm like, like, that's the word. That really changes Owen Wilson, man. Wow. (laughs) Like you see Lightning McQueen roll in like, ka-chow, you know? It's like, um, So like, yeah, we had like the TV guardian stuff set up and like, even with video games, like I remember, um, throwing it way back. Like I remember I had the game, I wasn't allowed to play M rated video games either. And I remember having a copy of Tom Clancy's ghost recon, uh, great game, great game. Like the very first one, it was like six levels, you know, and there's one bad, one quote unquote bad word in the whole game. And they say, let's get the hell out of Dodge. And which, in you know, they might as well have said, you know, or wow, in this case. And uh, for Patreon, for everybody else, general audiences, wow. Um, but that's what we're going to do where I'm just going to clip it into a sound. Wow. So I was going to ask time. you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but in the game, I remember very vividly, I was playing and my mom was in the room. I had played the first like three levels on like a low volume by myself and was like, there's no language in this game. And literally right when she sits down. They're like, let's get the hell out of Dodge. And, and it was like, 
off. And I was like, crap, you know, like not crap, darn, you know, <laughs> this is the worst. And, uh, but yeah, language was huge. Movies was tough. My mom was very strict when we were young and she kicks herself now. Cause like my mom has tr- changed a lot. Um, she like loves Harry Potter and all that good stuff. And like back when I was a kid, like we weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter. Like my mom was super strict about it because she had just listened to other people. And now she's like trying to get me into Harry Potter. I'm like, you, that boat has sailed. Like you ruined your chance of having a Harry Potter loving kid. It's over. So like there was a lot of stuff like that, but my mom is a literature nerd. She was a lit teacher. And so for her, it very quickly became like when, when I got to like junior high, high school, my ability to watch a lot of good movies opened up quite a bit. I still couldn't do R, but like we would watch a lot of movies with heavier themes than most IFB kids got to watch. And she would discuss them with me. And it was a healthy, I think a healthy kind of relationship with media and literature that a lot of kids didn't get. So, um, you know, we could read a Beowulf and, you know, not be like, oh, we can't talk about it because there's like sex in the story. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. See, I had the Abeka censored versions of Shakespeare Rough. and Beowulf, literally balderized versions. Um, my parents were very IFB where it came to movies, but we were allowed to watch Star Trek. Interesting. I was going to ask you, because you can ask Sadie what the first movie she saw in a, in a movie <laughs> theater was. I was going to ask you that, but like, I, I guess you got to see movies when you were a kid, so there's no like, okay. I'm- well, I didn't get to go to movie theaters. Um, I can tell you my movie theater experience. Okay, and then tell me what the first R-rated movie you ever saw was. Okay, well, that's a fun one. So the first R-rated movie I ever saw, because my parents had the strict R, no R. Like, even Passion of the Christ, no, it's R. So it was just across the board. Even though, like, PG-13 movies can sometimes be raunchier than an R-rated movie. But anyway, so uh, we were sitting there, hard no R rule, but we would watch movies all the time as a family. You know, my mom was kind of introducing me to, like, some classic movies, and so we rented the movie Psycho. Ooh. And so we, uh, that was the first like horror movie I remember watching. So we were watching the movie. We're like loving it. We're like, this is great, you know? And like, you know, had those same like Christian conversation, like, you know, this is great. There's, they made horror movies and they didn't have anything in them back then, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And uh, so then we watched the whole movie, scares the hell out of me. And then at the very end of the movie, it says this motion picture has been rated hard by the Motion Picture Association <laughs> of America. And my mom was like, what? And like, we all kind of looked at each other like, oops, we just watched an R-rated movie. Um, but <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of a game changer as far as like, oh, I guess some R-rated movies can't be that bad. On the flip side, we rented the PG movie Omega Man, which in the 70s PG was like, do whatever the heck you want. And that movie had full <laughs> frontal nudity. Um, and uh, that was a shocker for my young brain as well. So um, it's amazing what ratings can do. As far as my first movie theater experience, when I turned 18 years old, I was already a big horror movie fan. Um, I was watching a lot of like, you know, PG-13. And then my loophole was I would watch the unrated cuts because they weren't R-rated, but I would watch like unrated horror movies, which makes no (laughs) sense. And so, you know, I was a big fan of Evil Dead, which I'm still a big fan of Evil Dead. And around my birthday, the new Evil Dead was coming out. So this is 2013. It's the Fede Alvarez remake, which is a great remake. And I was like, I want to see it so bad. And I kind of like floated it past my dad. Like, oh man, I can't, that's so cool. There's a new Evil Dead, you know? And my dad, my dad just said, which blew my mind because I didn't know this was an option. He's like, well, you're going to be 18. So like, it's your choice. And so like 
on my 18th birthday, I went to the theater locally with my friend to go see Evil Dead. First experience in a theater. It was an amazing movie. Scared the hell out of me. Um, the audience was like the cliche movie theater audience, like yelling at the screen, like, oh, she peed herself. She's stepping in her own pee. Oh, he's going to cut her head off. You know, all this kind of crazy stuff. If you haven't seen Evil Dead, you're like, what's all the conversation about pee? But um, but anyway, so we watched the movie and then we had parked like three blocks away and we like were like half jogging back to the car because we were like freaked out by it. But that was my first movie experience. And like as much as I wish I could have caught like all the movies I love now in theaters then, like I'm pretty glad that was my first experience. It was pretty cool. That sounds much better than my first time in a movie theater experience. Which was coincidentally your first full frontal nudity experience. (laughs) Please give me some details on this. So so my first time seeing a movie in a theater, it was was the week of my 22nd birthday. So I don't know if I was technically 21 or 22 um but i I went to i was like oh i'm gonna be rebellious and i'm gonna go to a movie theater with my boyfriend and like one of my friends from pensacola christian college who is also rebellious and um we went to a movie theater and we just like see whatever was on so we didn't really care and um the movie was get hard wow so that was the first time. Um, Not really the height of cinema, but uh, I guess was, we got to start somewhere. So, well, the the thing about Get Hard, if you if you haven't if you haven't seen Get Hard, there is an extended scene where, where Will Ferrell decides that he's going to give a job, and it's <laughs> it's illustrate, but never quite actually gets to it. You know, but it's illustrated in, in just a great, a very close shot. And like I had never been in a theater before. And, you know, the first time you go in a theater, it's like, oh, my God, the screen is so big. <laughs> Everything is so loud. And it was it was just very in your face. <laughs> I just had that experience with uh, with Jackass Forever. I went to go see it by myself because I'm a cool person. And uh, I went to go see Jackass Forever. And like there's a plentiful amount of male genitalia and i was like this is very interesting on a large format like this and you're in a that, theater of people and you're like should we be seeing this together like this is very interesting but so so that but also i had never seen that in real life before oh double whammy <laughs> yeah that, so so i don't really go to theaters <laughs> oh. maybe a oh. little bit it's too it's like 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 jokes aside and this is all going to sound very perverse now that i've set it up with this story but the, it's everything is too big and too loud <laughs> like i just <laughs> and i know how that sounds given the story that i just told but seriously i don't enjoy theaters because it's too like the noises are coming from everywhere and like the screen is so big and i thought I, you were going to say you have like a fear that there's just going to i'm like that's not in every movie like not that's a rare circumstance. I that all movies just have at some point have and, and stuff. That- <laughs> Twenty foot. You're like, do you want to do you want to see the minions? No, I'm good. I'm kind of nervous about what they might do. You know, it's like <laughs> banana. All right, sorry. No, look, look, I, think, I think that's interesting, though, Sadie, because your favorite place in the world is Las Vegas. Yeah, I like Las Vegas. And everything's big and loud and coming at you from all directions. There's a lot of full and- frontal nudity. I mean, there's a lot here. You know? Well, I know I like Las Vegas because nobody pays attention to you. Right. Yeah. Well, next time you're in Vegas, we all need to do an in-person one of these. I am 100% down for that. Um, I think now that we, I think we've I think we've talked about everything we needed to talk about, plus some more. 
I'll yeah. come out to Vegas for the 2023 Formula One Grand Prix. That of looks Vegas. amazing. That's that looks so cool. Dude. Well, we people have been asking us to do Eden Con in in Vegas. Eden Con. Um, Amazing. But if if we if we get to that, I want to go to. I'm turning thirty next year, and I really want to oh, be in cool. Vegas for Dirty Thirty. So yeah. at some point, we will make that happen. Let's do it. It'd be awesome. We'll do it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us. This has been a delight. Yeah. What a close to the episode. Wow. <laughs> um. Yeah. Thanks. For we we like to do that. We either ended Nothing on like a like super <laughs> super serious, like heart wrenching note, or on a string of stupid jokes. I love yeah, it. We did. We didn't even make any jokes about Sadie's dead dad. <laughs> we did not. We did not do that this episode. I'm um, not we'll comfortable have to... at all right now. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna mute. <laughs> L- listen, I'm a pastor's kid. The morbid humor is. It's is natural. Strong. Yeah, it's what he would want for sure. Oh, absolutely. That, that's um, what I always think. Like, I'm always like, man, I hope people make really bad jokes about me at my funeral. Like, that's kind of the goal. Like, I just want people to cope with the way that I would, which is ridiculous humor. So, well, um, you know, ho- hopefully we all live a very long time. But if I if I have any hand in in making that happen, I'll make it happen. Um, <laughs> while we're still in recording, do you want to plug any and all podcasts and social media and all of that stuff so our listeners know where to find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the number one place for this audience would probably be the Preacher Boys podcast. Uh, it is a super heavy show. So um, if you want to specifically uh, hear about trauma within the Independent Fundamental Baptist movement, uh, it's a great place to do that. Um, but I understand, you know, there's people that support the mission of the show but don't want to listen. Um, no hard feelings there. If you want a slightly at times lighter version um, of the show where we talk more about the deconstruction side, questioning things, talking about faith, sex, politics, money, all of the taboo topics that people like to talk about as they try to figure life out. Uh, Our new show, Figuring It Out, uh, would be a great place to do that. You can find out all about that show over at figuringitout.tv. And I'll throw in one last one, uh, since I have so many podcasts. Uh, if you want to talk about movies, um, you know, head over to the Film Schooled podcast. Uh, I talk with some pretty cool people over there. And Fundy Throwback, uh, I interviewed Karen Grassley from Little House on the Prairie. So, uh, oh. you know, if wow. you... And she's a, uh, you know, she's a feminist advocate, uh, badass. So... Uh, I think people will be really surprised by her perspective and what the show was for her. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm always behind a microphone. So if you like hearing my voice, there's plenty of places to hear me. And if you don't like it, there's no escape. So uh, good luck. <laughs> that That's my life goal. I want like a, like a, a whole fistful of podcasts. Yeah. It's uh it's the best and worst thing of all time. We can make it happen, man. We, we, we'll do it. Um, yeah, if you want to follow our podcast, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. Send us your crazy stories about things that happened to you on your missions trips or things you heard about happening to other people on their missions trips. You know, testimonies. They come back to church. They give a testimony and you're like, wow, that's insane. Send it to us at LeavingEdenPod at gmail.com. We're going to do a great episode with Dinah house fire uh who is going to come on as the monarch of uh missions messiness and we're going to to read these stories together and have a laugh or have a cry or have a commiseration uh whichever seems appropriate sadie do you want to plug your social media Uh, you can follow me 
on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, or on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Eric, thanks for coming on today. This has been a great time. This is this is super fun. Love to have you. Love to talk to you again soon. Yeah. Um, and to all of our listeners, we hope you have a great day. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.